would like to welcome you to the third season of How Not to Start a Damn Brewery, the podcast. In this podcast, I consider it my duty to share the sometimes gory, but always honest truth hidden in the craft beer industry, mainly that it rarely operates like an actual business. Margins are trash, distributors are garbage, and capital expenditures are a raging dumpster fire. But many of the people involved in all these organizations are true badasses. So I will autopsy deceased breweries, retailers, and distributors. I'll talk with wineries, breweries, and distilleries, all in the search for ways to lure out profitability and best practices for you to use in your career to be better tomorrow. In 2020, I released a book about my journey of failure and the lessons it forced me to learn. My hope and the hope of our guests is that by telling all of our stories, we'll be able to teach you and teach each other what to avoid and how in the hell to avoid it. To make the industry better, to make the people happier, and hopefully, to even make the beer taste better. So thanks for joining us and being part of this journey. If you feel inspired, I would appreciate a like, a share, and a rating. You can't even imagine the difference that it actually makes. Earthlings, meet Gene Bauk, the mad scientist from the late genetic brewing in Florida. Gene started as a home brewer, like many of you. Gene dreamed of the freedom of entrepreneurship, like many of us. And as part of an ever-increasing pool of dead and dying breweries, Gene watched his breweries suffer and die. The goal of this podcast has always been open and honest conversation with people who've been there. People who have put their futures on the line in an attempt to craft something beautiful. Gene's story is hard to hear. There's anger and pain and disillusionment. I've been right where he was, and it was hard for me to ask some of the things I had to ask him to get the story that we needed to get today. But it's part of the story of American craft beer, particularly in 2022. It may be your future. It may be your past. Hell, it might just be something compelling to listen to while you work in an industry that doesn't chew up and spit out its producers. No matter who you are, where you come from, or what you love, please keep in mind all that Gene gave to keep his business alive. And remember that every brewery near you is somewhere on a similar timeline. So go spend some money with them, like now. So Gene, I want to thank thank you for talking, thanks for sharing, and thanks most of all for giving a rock-hard fuck about helping my guests be better at their careers. I am interested in talking to you today because you were a home brewer. You dreamed of greatness like so many home brewers do. You opened up a brewery and then unfortunately had to watch it close. And uh, I really want to hear what happened, like how that felt and what your plans for the future are. But before we get to the story of the brewery, Let's talk about you. Who who were you before you were a beer maker? What were your hobbies when you were kids? Like, what what else did you do? Like, you know, you know, I got uh, probably a lot of my philosophy um, started. I grew up, was born south of Chicago in Illinois, a, a little tiny town. I kind of lived in, you know, until I was eight years old. My parents had a couple acres there, and I always grew a big garden out there in the good soil of Illinois. So that, that kind of got my interest in growing things going, which, so, you know, from there, we moved down to Florida when I was a kid, you know, third grade, Orlando area wasn't really that developed then. So, you know, I kind of still had that, that love for nature and we had a lot of unexplored places here and dirt roads and things like that. So that always led me to be outside in the woods, getting into, this is a little bit later, but I mean, I was already interested in it, but you know, I, I go out there and kind of do foraging type stuff i'm always looking for local stuff that's native to to use and you know even before i was really making beer i was kind of interested in that stuff kind of the survival skill type type thing like that you know so that all translated over into what i was trying to do with beer you know besides that i played a lot of sports i played you know football baseball lacrosse went away to college went to college in a small school in virginia in the in the appalachian mountains so that kind of went perfect with my my nature focus again there too I actually went to graduate school at Baylor, so I went to Texas for a while after that. Just did a year there. 
dropped out of that too. Kind of, kind of the same way as my brewing career, I guess. He had a twelve month uh, sentence in Texas. <laughs> I mean, I liked it. I moved back. I lived in uh, in Houston for a couple of years too. Um, but unfortunately, this is before the breweries were going crazy. Um, you know, so that was the early two thousands. Yeah. I like it where you're at. You know, I still go back. I went to Texas last last year for a week to see a buddy of mine. But uh, I mean, that's kind of it. I got into not being able to find the job I thought I was supposed to get with my bachelor's degree and <laughs> little my degrees in physics, by the way. So you have a physics degree. Makes me sound, makes me sound smart, but it didn't quite work out the way I was uh, hoping for. Because you know, I, I just jumped around from job to job and kind of settled into like IT project management stuff for the last fifteen years or so, and made a little bit of money and got got sick of having a boss and and all that bought and sold a house for the right price i said you know what well, let's do something with this money and try to try to make something out of it instead of just sitting on it and so that's where i came up with the the brewery idea at what point did you decide that you had what it takes to be a brewery owner where you were just like dude i gotta do this yeah i mean going back to to meeting those the couple of brewery owners you know that that tasted my my homemade beers you know saying mm-hmm. it was the best at the at the meetup, you know, of like 30, 35 people, you know, that, that kind of gave me a lot of confidence into it. I had probably been brewing six or seven years at that time, just at home. Yeah. That, after that, I mean, I kind of started being more creative and, and pushing it a little bit and, you know, just let other people try them. I never once, I home brewed for probably almost 20 years. Not once did I enter a, a home brewer competition though, because I always thought those style guidelines were too restrictive and I never had a thought to make a beer that tasted exactly like some other beer, you know, that would stand up to the judging. So I kind of, kind of never got into that. You know, I did a couple of the, uh, what do you call it? Not like a, a porter, like a pour, I've like done some pouring, you know, for the judges, the BJCP judges and stuff to see how they work. Mostly I was just there to drink the free beer, you know, cause you pour it out for a couple of judges and then, (laughs) then you get some too. Just having people taste my beers and, and say they were good, you know, that, I know I'm creative. I haven't worked professionally as a chef, but I've been cooking like pretty much every day of my life since my early 20s too. And I kind of kind of take the same approach to beer, you know. I I'm, it was never a heavily recipe focused guy or anything. I kind of wing it as I go along. I had a very um, similar approach. I used to call it grip it and rip it. And we would just see what happens. Yeah. Like, who knows? It could be great. It could be bad. But either way, it'll be interesting and, and we'll learn from it and then pivot and do something different afterwards. But so your story is similar to many home brewers that are going pro, and obviously uh, many of those people uh, either listen to the show before that happens or they're in their career early on after that happens. And so I'm curious from your perspective, because one of the things that I see is almost 100% of the time the home brewer says, hey, I made good beer, I should open a brewery, but I don't think I've ever heard a home brewer say, I made beer that was good enough and I'm a marketing motherfucker, I'm going to open a brewery. Yeah. So, uh, and we're foreshadowing a little bit, so we're not going to go into detail, but I would like to ask you at that moment when you decided that you were quote unquote qualified to open a brewery because you made good beer, looking back, do you think that was good enough to qualify you at that point to open a brewery? I mean, you, you got to have some sort of business background or, you know, some understanding of, of how the system works. Obviously, I didn't have a good enough understanding. You know, I didn't know what I didn't know. So I definitely ran into some issues, but, you know, I, I did things like financial advising and I've, you know, done, I've always been a big reader. So I, I figured I had what it takes, you know, I, I did my research and got it off the ground, but I don't know. I, I, I think lately here, I've been seeing breweries that are more of that market driven guy, like that aren't owned by a brewer. Mm-hmm. And I, I, yeah, I can tell as soon as I see their marketing or walk into place and I'm not interested in those at all. 
But unfortunately, it seems like those are the ones that are actually doing well here lately, you know, because because it's all about that marketing. I was never interested in the marketing aspect, which was a lot more important than than I <laughs> anticipated. I, I thought the beer would sell itself almost, you know. That's chapter one in my book <laughs> that it does not do that. Um, but I learned that the hard way as well. But no, I would agree with you. I think that uh, you're seeing more and more people from outside the industry or and or investors or whatever that the business is coming first, the beer is coming second. And as much as I would yeah. agree, I think they're definitely getting the popularity. I don't know about the profitability because obviously I don't see their books, but that was a big reason, and by no means the only one, but a big reason why I finally sold my brewery and left the industry. Because I was like, this isn't what I ever wanted to do. Like, sure, I could hire a guy. We could create that kind of business plan. We could restructure the, you know, gut the brewery and make it prettier and part marble floors. But I, that that doesn't yeah. interest me. So I'm not, I'm the wrong guy for that. So I sold it, you know. Yeah, and sit there and make you know, four different juice bombs and eight hazy IPAs with lactose in them. Yeah. That's what sells. But I did that. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. I don't, I hate those things. Yeah. <laughs> you right. know? So, but that's what sells. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So early on, uh, when you started telling friends and family that you were going to do this, did anybody try to talk you out of it and say, dude, you're fucking stupid. You can't open a brewery. It's not going to work. Yeah. My wife, um, <laughs> It took me a couple of years. I convinced her finally, but you know, but that also didn't work out. Everybody else, I mean, yeah, I, I guess there was definitely a doubt, but you know, everybody that's close to me kind of has always believed in me. You know, I'm, I've always been the guy people go to for advice on things or whatever, you know? So even if my own life is in shambles, I'm pretty good at <laughs> uh, telling other people what to do. You know, one of those do as I say, not as I do things. Yeah. Well, look at me. I, I wrote a book on how to do it wrong. So I agree with you. Yes. You can, you can definitely learn out of, out of pain and suffering. Out of curiosity, was there a specific reason that your wife was saying that you shouldn't do it? Or was it just money and time? Like, was it? I think she was just very fiscally conservative. You know, she, she's yeah. not the type to take chances yeah. on things. And, and, you know, it's, it's a gamble. I, I knew that. And I explained that going in and, you know, I tried to ran all kinds of calculations and numbers and stuff about, you know, what to expect. But in the end, you, you can't, you can never predict the future. So I see a lot now too, where like I'm, I'm consulting a little bit more, or I'm reading, you know, people's business plans in the beginning and trying to help out. And you just see a lot of people. I imagine you were similar to me that I had the same thing that I knew that it was a struggle and I knew almost nothing about what the hell I was going to be doing, but somehow I was arrogant enough to you know, ignore all that and be like, well, I'll figure it out. I'll do it. Like I want to do, I'm so passionate that I will figure it out. Yeah. And then for a while I kind of did, but at the end, obviously I clearly did not. So it can work, but all right. So uh, in, in reference to you, like why you started the brewery, I am not going to let you off the hook without asking. There's a blog post on your website that happens to still be up and it says why I founded Genetic Brewing. And it says, I like beer a lot. I don't know if that qualifies as a blog post, Gene. I think that might just be like. <laughs> well, that was that was someone consulting with me. To say, they say, start putting blog posts for, you know, for search engine optimization and stuff like that. Yeah. So that was just my thing. I, I did see there is the about me page on there. I don't know if you found that. I did. Yeah. That, that was linked. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, that was basically all I, I wrote up. But, yeah, I just, you know, I guess my blog posts were posting on Instagram or something, you know, but I'm not creative in marketing. So I had nothing to talk about unless I had a new beer. Like, so all my posts were just, Hey, here's a new beer. You know, and I talk about, I, I got a passion to talk about an individual beer, but you know, I don't just make up content, you know, that's what, that's what all my social media advisors, meaning just people <laughs> sitting at my bar. Right. Telling you what you should be doing. You, know, you got to put content out there every day, every day, every day. I'm like, 
I'm like, I don't, maybe I'm not like everybody else. Cause when I see that I scroll through social media all day, but the more somebody posts, the less I want to go there. But I think I'm opposite of 99% of the people out there. And maybe that's a big reason for, for a failure too, is I'm, I'm not outgoing like that. And I get turned off by marketing, you know? <laughs> I don't know that in the beer industry, especially in the beginning when we started like 12, 13, 14, the people were pissed at slick marketing. Like it was, if it sounded too slick and controlled, they just, they were anti and even all the labels yeah. back then were different and it just, the industry just changed. And for whatever reason, that's how everybody markets. But I don't know that that is getting the attention. It, at the end of the day, I think the same 48 people were going to listen to your shit regardless of what you posted. Cause you know, yeah, you have fan, fans and friends and that were on that site. They're going to go to it. I don't think that because you put something every day and it was cuter yesterday than it was today that they're going to come this weekend at your tap room. I, I don't, yeah. that's a hard line to draw. Maybe, but it's a hard line to draw either way. So but let's talk about your business plan for a little bit. Did, did you actually have a written business plan in the beginning? I'll, I'll preface that by yeah. saying I didn't. So if you didn't, don't feel bad. So. Oh, no, no, I did. And, and I went and I took like these economic development classes from the local university here mm-hmm. that, you know, had had some free classes. I went through all that business planning and marketing and all that stuff. And it was helpful. I mean, one of the one of the guys there, he kept on following me and, you know, he was really interested in it. I mean, he was a craft beer guy that that, that was, you know, one of the professors or whatever you call them there. So, yeah, so yeah I, I really tried to, to go through with a lot of planning and everything. Do you have any idea how long it took you to make the plan, just roughly? I mean, actually, write, writing it up w- wasn't really more than a, a day or two. But, you know, like going through those classes, that was a month or two. So, you know, I tweaked it along the way as, you know, I listened to people and, and tried to do things the right way. So, yeah, you know, I gave it time. And then this was I was doing this probably two or three years before even signing a lease. And then it still took me a couple of years after signing a lease before I opened. So, you know, I was doing that almost, you know, eight years before actually opening up. So. Oh, you would wow. think I had enough planning in there, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, unfortunately, with this not. industry too, like just the dynamic changes so much in that. In that eight-year period, we probably tripled the number of breweries and yeah, it's a different, different yeah. game. But did you ever go back? And I'm curious, again, I did not have a written plan, but it would have been entertaining as shit to go back and compare it to what actually <laughs> happened for me, especially. Yeah. But did you ever go back and look at like how far off your revenue projections were? Because clearly you didn't put together a business plan that showed a loss, right? Or Maybe for yeah, a period. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I had a break-even number um, per month that I would need to make. You know, I did like the three-year, you know, financial projection and all that. And, you know, I knew where my break-even point was, and that actually ended up being about the correct number. The problem right. is I never hit it, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I saw I had the right plan. I just couldn't hit the numbers that I, that I had there, you know. Yeah, the top line never um, met what you needed. I still look a little bit. I, I just got my, uh, I don't know what it's called, the whatever my, my schedule for the tax, for tax purposes back, you know, mm. unless you're in your, your, uh, income by month and it wasn't pretty. <laughs> my last year was really bad too. 2020 was actually not that bad, but 2021 just, ugh, it was, it was time to go for me, but that's one of the biggest things that I've seen. And so again, we're kind of trying to create things that people can learn from. So when I'm looking at business plans, I almost always see what you just said, that everyone kind of gets, you know, within a range, you know how what it costs to make the beers, you know what your rent's gonna be, your electrical, maybe you're a hundred bucks off, but that's $1,200 for the year, that's not that big a deal on a $400,000 business plan. But um, the revenue is always completely bullshit. And so basically what everybody does is figures out what it costs and then just figures out what number they need to sell to cover that. But 
they almost never have a great plan in there for how to reach it. And I actually, I've talked to guys that were, they're going to do a hundred thousand dollars a month out of their tasting room. The, the fourth month being open. And I'm like, dude, you're not like, there's no way. And I think that's a really hard thing about business plans is that most of them are not accurate. So do you, do you feel that would have made a difference had you had a more accurate revenue target, I guess? No, I mean, I, I try to do, I mean, I try to do it pretty much by myself. And so, you know, I got a cheap little place that I could find and, you know, I really only had to hit, you know, between 10 and 15,000 a month in sales and I would have been successful and yeah. I couldn't even get there. I ended up being in a little back corner of a plaza that was hard to get into things like that. And, and I mean, really the main, I mean, we can get into this later or something, but the, the, the COVID thing is really, I think what, what did me in. I would have struggled anyways, but that sure didn't help, you know. Well, for everybody, it just, it took any weakness and just magnified it. Like you're in deep shit now. That's a storm that you can't weather without assistance and, you know, public support. So that's going to be tough. Yeah. yeah. Even before that, I I actually had a big problem with the, the renovations of the place. That cost me a lot more money than I thought it was going to be. So it kind of took away my, you know, my, my reserve. To, to get somewhere because it, it took almost two years to, for me to get the building uh, permits. Really? But and I hired, I hired a contractor and they ended up not being very good, bad architect too. And this is a tiny building. We're talking about 1500 square feet that I shoved a brewery into the entire <laughs> thing, tap yeah. room and brewery. I projected to open in eight or nine months from signing a lease and it turned out being two years. Wow. You know, so there's over a year of rent and just general expenses that I didn't plan for. So that kind of whittled away at my nest egg to help me weather the storm that was coming in 2020. You know, if I would have, right. I kind of didn't want to put anything in advertising or anything. Cause I was already kind of running short on operating funds. The whole construction aspect really got me on the, off on a bad foot. I, I did not plan for it costing that much because I also grew up doing construction too. So I built my own bar. I built my own tables. I built pretty much everything in there. And it still ended up costing me a lot. You know, I didn't cut floor drains. I didn't do the electrical. I was in the hole already just because of the construction delays and, and cost. So that is something I got wrong, definitely. Were there any specific things that somebody should watch out for that like kind of always under budgeted for? And you were like, man, you got to go way over that. The time, I think, is probably the main one. Mm-hmm. And like I said, it's just taken so much longer. I guess another cautionary tale I would say there is I was in technically in this town called Lake Mary, which is a suburb of, of Orlando. It's the demographics are good. You know, it's, it's people in their forties and fifties with decent jobs, good property values. And the city wanted a brewery. The problem is the, the cheap place that I found had the address, but it was actually in unincorporated County. So it wasn't in the city limits that hurt the building permit process because the County doesn't really care. Huh. If you find a municipality, a small town or a city that wants to bring in business, and you know you have contacts in there. They'll help you along with the process better than going straight to a, a county seat. Mm-hmm. I think was a big problem for me there, because they didn't give a crap, you know, about yeah. about having a brewery. You know, the, the county's big, hmm. a small town. That, that's probably a, a better place you want to get into. You know, I, I talked with city planners at a couple of different places, and they seem very excited about the possibilities of a brewery. But uh, you know, at the county, nobody cares. <laughs> Be economic incentives from from cities too the counties don't really care i don't think yeah so so how did you pick the equipment that you brought in there and what size did you use good question trying to think of where i first saw it i I ended up going with a colorado brewing systems 
Mm-hmm. They kind of people compare that to the brew in the bag thing, you know. You you're mashing and, and boiling in the same kettle. Yeah. Got a big winch, so you take you know you got a, a screen basket basically, and you you winch the all the grain out, and then just boil right there. I like that. I like that they were American made, and I like that they went to a, a small volume. It, it went right into my philosophy of brewing. It was just a, a two barrel system, but it was two different one barrel kettles, so I could brew two different one barrel batches at a time. Because cool. I like variety, you know. I never drink the same beer twice in a row, you know. I, I thought other people would kind of follow that philosophy too, and it allowed me to get a lot more experimental. You know, I could put random wild shit that I found in the woods, you know, into my beers in such a small batch. You can't do that with a ten barrel batch, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, I liked everything about it, and it was fairly cheap. I mean, for a brewing system, I like that. I mean, I, I went with small. You know, nano brewery is all I wanted to be. I wanted to be the guy that was making the weird shit that that nobody else could even think of making. And it worked in, in many cases, <laughs> but uh, it got hard to keep up with and ended up having issues with the system. They went out of business last year, too, so that didn't help. Oh, did they? It's, it's interesting because <laughs> so, so uh, Lauren at Black Rabbit Farms that I interviewed previously, she said the same thing, that it was a cool design, basically, but they hated it. And it, was, it did not work for them either. Yeah, I mean, I, I made really some good beers at first, but then I started having some issues with, I don't know, just just everything. I mean, the actual system was just so bad and my relays were burning out. They sent me some new ones and I was having issues with the, the heating elements and went through different parts and ended up buying my own. And finally, I just tossed the control panel away and, and wired it myself. And I'm in there manually brewing. I had an on and off switch and that's it. So I had to sit there and watch the temperature and a thermometer. That's how I brewed for the last year and a half, which I'm fine with. I, I like being hands on like that. You know, I don't, I never use those automated functions anyways, but it ruined a few batches. You know, I had scorching issues and stuff like that. And at a time when I was operating on a thin line, even at the beginning, you know, losing two or three batches in a row, even though we're only talking 80, 100 pounds of grain, that, that starts to make a dent. And time is, was the biggest thing, you know. Really, once the shutdowns happened, then I, I couldn't afford to pay anybody else. You know, I had an assistant brewer at the beginning. So at least I was getting some help in there, you know, and, and bartending. I, I planned on doing a lot of the bartending myself in the beginning anyways because who better to sell your beer than the, than the guy that makes it and knows everything about it i used to travel for work a lot and that would be always my favorite thing you know hitting the brewery on a tuesday afternoon i know at least the brewer and owner is going to be there you know as opposed to a saturday night and mm-hmm. so you know i i probably hit hundreds of breweries up and down the east coast you know ramping up to this because I, luckily i was traveling for work so they gave me the opportunity to do it and, you know, I got great advice from everybody. So I'm like, hey, I want to do the same thing. I want to be in the house most of the time so people can ask me questions and things. But after a while, when you're running low on money, I ended up having the – basically, I was in there handling the entire business, including bartending almost almost full time, you know, mm-hmm. four to midnight every day. That's a long and, shift. Uh, you know, definitely helped burn me out, which led to me not doing as much either. So, I mean, there, there's another thing. Burnout is a real factor, Yeah, especially if you're doing everything by yourself. On the small scale, I definitely had that where there are multiple nights that, you know, working 12 or 14 hour days and you're just, I don't love it now. Like, you know, at some point, why do you want to do it? It sucks. Yeah. So how long do you think it took ultimately from fuck yes, let's totally do this to oh shit, we just totally did this because you got open was like 2019 January, I think. I was in 2020. Oh, that's right. 2020 January. Yeah. Um, I mean, basically, I, you know, the, the first weekend was great i was packed in there i had i was selling as much as i needed to it just didn't continue 
I was doing good. My oh shit moment was, I think I still remember the date, you know, March 14th or something. I had my grand opening scheduled for later in March. You know, it's going to have the big party and everything. You know, it's kind of just soft opening period. You know, I'm getting ready to for the day to go to work. I start getting texts like, hey, did you did you see this news? I had a food truck scheduled and everything to be up there. I'm like, what? And, you know, that's a day. Okay, all bars and restaurants are, are closed until further notice, you know. That was, that was my oh shit moment. Because, yeah, I mean, food truck canceled. And everybody didn't know. Everybody's panicking. And like, okay, what are we going to do with this? <laughs> so... Yeah. That was the worst thing for me. Um, I, I was kind of handling it. I mean, I, I still was, <laughs> all my other flaws were probably still still apparent, but <laughs> up until that moment, I was still having fun with it. And I lived there, basically, and, and that was fine with me. You know, I was already there every day for like two years before opening, just doing stuff and drinking beer. And I was already making beer just for my friends there, which was cool. When you said it but, was like eight years total to get up, so you were there for two years before, but even before that, it was another just in my planning you know yeah. I, I knew i was opening one at you know what 20 2015 or so well so it wasn't that long but i think i, I had my llc since like 2015 i think so i was already working on it but yeah i mean just signing the lease you know writing those checks i mean that that was definitely an oh shit moment <laughs> you know and uh you know and and not with very much investment from anybody else you know so it was just just our personal money that we saved up so uh, you know that's definitely real changes the game a little bit from the whole idea of brewing beer and having fun as a home brewer to now everything is on the line. So for sure, that's a scary moment. Well, I'm going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, what I want to hear a little bit about the beer that you made, how you selected it, what you named them. In the third section, I really want to get into how that COVID thing affected you and um, how you feel about the politics there in in Florida. I imagine you'll have an opinion. So looking forward to that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, so after all the prep in the building, the lead time waiting, you finally opened the doors January 2020. Prior to opening day, you obviously had to make wort so that you yeast could turn that into beer. What did you start with? What were your beers you opened with? What was the lead up? I did pretty good on a, like opening night. I think I had eight of my own. Which really? Going to a lot of other brewery openings, you know, I usually I'd see them with one or two. But that's the advantage of going with the small batch stuff. I was able to get stuff together quickly. I can't remember what all of them were. I mean, the, the two big... What I was starting to get known for a little bit was was a couple of sours that I had on there. I had a what did I have? A peach and a cherry sour. The cherries don't grow in Florida, so I had to buy them from elsewhere. But stuff like peaches, I would always try to source locally. Those things. I mean, I, I did the true mixed firm instead of that kettle souring stuff. So um, those were always very a lot. Of, a lot of people came in just for my sours. I, I don't even know what else I had opening night, but I know some of the ones that I came up with, at least within the first month or two, that that people really liked were the off the wall ones for the most part. You know, I made a version of a, it's almost like a porta. It's a, an Ethiopian traditional beer called Tella, hmm. which is made with without hops. Um, they call them aroma hops. It's a some kind of shrub that grows in, in Ethiopia. I was able to source some of that, play around with weird things like that. Uh, what else did I do? One, one of my favorites that I ended up making a lot of was called One Love, which I did with, with sorrel, which is like, a lot of people call it like Florida cranberry. It's a type of hibiscus. So my first time doing that, I actually grew all of that myself in my mom's backyard. You're taking the calyx from after it flowers. So it's it's almost got a cranberry-ish type flavor, a bright, a bright red beer. It's like a, it's a drink in the Caribbean, a tea made out of this hibiscus with ginger and clove and allspice, maybe cinnamon. And I put, put a little citrus in there. That one ended up being real good. So I, I basically made a beer version of it. I used to go to Miami a lot and, and drink this with, you know, the Jamaicans down there. You know, a lot of the old guys would, 
would throw the white rum in there and the tea and make it a drink. So, you know, I got that idea way back when, and it took me like five years before I finally made it. But I said, man, I could make a beer version of this. So that one definitely ended up being, being popular. Of course, you got a lot of, a lot of extra labor in there, all that cleanup and processing all the plants. You yeah, know, um, it'd be tough to do on a production that, scale, but yeah, for you, it'd be, that's yeah, perfect. That was definitely one of the most more popular ones that I thought I would only make once a year because, you know, that, that flower only only blooms in like November, December. But it was so popular that I had to start buying that dried and try to keep that one on the menu, you know. In the beginning, did you plan to have any flagships at all? Like, were you, was your whole idea no. to always rotate? Yes, it was always going to be completely seasonal. And, and even if I was going to make a similar beer again, I would only use kind of the base recipe. And my view is that a beer should change every time you make it. I never wanted to reproduce something exactly. Probably goes into how not to start a damn brewery because apparently people are more creatures of habit than I am. You know, so I would have people that come in and they, they would drink the same beer every time and that's it. Like I, I've never, unless I'm at home, I've never drank the same beer twice in a row at a brewery, I don't think. And I've been to a lot of breweries, but that's not true for a lot of people apparently. No, and it, it's hard because all the people that are our friends are largely our friends because they kind of drink and think the way that we do. But the rest yeah, of the world, yeah. 78% of the beer drinkers that are, that are out there do, don't give a flying fuck about what we're talking about. So it, it's challenging for, to make money at it for sure. So did you end up then having to have kind of a flagship? You said people would come in and drink the same um, beer. Did you have to? Were you having people disappointed that you didn't have beer number whatever on the draft line? Yeah, so you started yeah. having to keep it on? Yeah, definitely. I, I did. Uh, I could only do this one four times, but I, I did one called flip flops, like Florida hops for the flops. I got I got to know um, a couple that just uh, had a, a hop yard in their backyard, and and that's kind of in its infancy in Florida. Nobody thought you could grow hops down here. They were just experimenting, and, and now they're a full family farm, and so they're still producing. But they they found a way to get harvest four times a year out of hops. So I, I really think Florida's could be the next big hop producer quality is good it turns out it wasn't the soil or the heat that bothered them that's what a lot of people thought it was just a lighting issue they need like a 12-hour day to stimulate them to go to the flower yeah so they don't even have grow lights but they just string lights up through the field and that that's enough to <laughs> make them go to flower so they're getting four harvests a year so that beer i would make exclusively with whole cones that i'd go out and pick them that day and then go and make the beer as fresh as you it know. gets. So huh? doesn't get any fresher than that, you know. It wasn't an overly hoppy beer, just a blonde, nice, uh, nice cavake yeast to give it some like orange peel notes, you know. A nice, it's a beach beer. It's perfect for Florida. So that that was definitely that would be the one that I probably could have brought to market or something, you know. And an IPA that I made that was probably more like a more of a pale ale. I called it an IPA because I had to. I, I'm not a hop head at all, but uh, you know, I came up with a pretty good recipe. I just called it Enzy because it was all New Zealand hops and. That's what people wanted, so I, I always had that. And in fact, that beer, I, I got a group of guys that were kind of starting a, a small little thing called Community Brew House, where they just had a five-barrel system, which was bigger than what I had. So I worked with them a little bit to, I wouldn't call it contract brewing. Well, I mean, I guess it is contract brewing technically, but I'd go down there and, you know, be in there. You know, I'd have one of them helping me, but, you know, I was still brewing it myself. So those those couple beers, I ended up starting to kind of go through that process to just get them made on a slightly larger scale. I mean, a five barrel is still a small batch yeah. in the industry. I got it one time canned, which was awesome because that was during the, the shutdowns, you know, so I had something I could sell to go. Mm-hmm. Perfect beach beer. If I could have, maybe that's something I consider doing in, in the future, something like that, even going through contracts, you know, I don't know. But I'm sure we're going to get into that later. <laughs> Yeah, I didn't repeat too many things besides those few. 
Do you think that that was something that's important for now that you're looking back? Every big brewery does, you know, big flagships. They've got a flagship that consistently draws the most of their money. Do you think that that is something that you you would recommend people do? Uh, Yeah, if you want to stay in business, (laughs) you know. It's not what I like, and it's not even what I want to see when I go to a brewery. But again, like I said, we're we're a little different than the the general consuming public. But yeah, I'd say you probably got to have a good four that you've got year round, just so people know what to expect. But so when you were making your beers, normally you were inspired to brew things based on flavors you'd experienced, or did you just come in in the morning and be like, "I'm in, I'm gonna try this motherfucking thing," or how how did you decide what you're gonna make? Yeah, I just take my inspiration from seasonality and, and like i said kind of just going out in the woods using in the spring i've, I've used pine needles in my beers before you know I've, I've done some acorns oak leaves you know i try to go with that but you know a lot of these weird ingredients that i come across you know i would make a tea or something with them and you know blend it with some whatever beer i happen to be drinking just to kind of get an idea of the flavor profile before i even wanted to mess with a, a barrel batch you know mm-hmm. so like i said I, I like cooking i think i have a pretty good idea of how flavors go together, you know. I mean, I'm the type of guy that comes in with an idea of what I was going to do in the morning, like a grain bill, but I'd sit there and crunch on a couple of them together and kind of change it based on how I think those flavors are going to going to go together. But that's the fun part of brewing. I don't like going in and knowing exactly what how the day is going to go, you know, exactly what the product's going to taste like. I would agree with you, but what you're about to say is that from a profitability standpoint, and I had the exactly. same problem. So I did that's, the same thing. Not- I'd be happy to make. Yep. You know, literally two cases of something and have it be like limited and, and unique. But at the end of the day, the amount of effort and time and just it wasn't worth yeah. it, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. It takes the same amount of time to make a barrel batch as it does a 10 barrel batch, you know? Yeah. So your your cost of labor is, is definitely a significant factor. Jesus, got bombed by a bumblebee. Uh-oh. When it comes to your names, did you, you, you wrote all the names for the most part? Yeah. Uh, did you actually um, name a beer the shit? I did, yes. That is the kind of thing <laughs> right. that I would have been eviscerated for. And it, most people, the, the, the average consumer in the craft beer industry in Texas hates me. I, I used to joke that I'm the most hated brewery owner in Texas. I would have been eviscerated <laughs> online if I had done that. How did you get the response from your – it looked like people were rating it highly. They liked it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's an acronym for Sugar Honey, Yaupon. Oh, God. What was the tea for? Yaupon Howley, that's another native uh, tea that I that I used to work with a lot. Um, I know some guys that have a farm for that over here too. Maybe it was, it's just Yaupon tea. And and those things I came up with most of the time. I would put a beer on the board, and I wouldn't even have a name for it. I'd have my regulars come in at four o'clock in the afternoon. I got a new one to tap, and I'd get you know crowd participation on a lot of them. <laughs> oh yeah, I think that was one of them. You know, just people sitting around my bar. I'm like, I don't know what to call it. What do you think? So I would just you know, I kind of ran it like it was you know me in my own little home bar so there's another thing to not do that way <laughs> i gave away a lot of free beer too i mean you know even people i didn't know before they became such good friends because i was there 24 7 and they'd be in at least a few times a week that i'd end up giving giving too much away probably and drinking too much of it myself with them i had a good time but uh, yeah definitely not profitable doing that either well one question i had for you about your tasting room is it looked like you had guest beer that you had in there as well yeah, that that wasn't my plan, but I, I couldn't keep up. You couldn't keep up. Oh, you, so you, it wasn't in your plan to do this. That was one of my questions. Is that um, yeah, every, I was going to start weeding off that, you know, and, and try to fill up my whole 18. I had 18 taps, you know. I, I wanted them to all be mine. Maybe have a cider on one of them or something for people. And I don't think I ever – I think I was up to like 10 one time is, is the most I ever had at once. Yeah. So did you do it kind of to fill a style gap? Were you trying to 
figure out specific yeah beers? i mean definitely ipas because like i said i i'm not interested in brewing ipas but there's another mistake for you right there because what do you think sells <laughs> but yeah, still the top selling beer and all the different yeah, types so of I, I usually get like a west coaster and a, a hazy or something on from a guest tap just to have those around i'd have a cider for the gluten-free people just try to fill in the gaps of what i didn't have okay well i talked a little bit in my book too i did some uh charts in there about like kind of the sales volume and the fact that you can actually make more money on other people's beer than yours, depending on how quickly you sell it. I was just curious, yep. did you have like certain things that you were just fucking killing it with that were guest beers that just really worked for you? That were outselling your beers, I guess? I mean, yeah, a lot of times just having a, a base log, basic lager or something from somebody, you know? Yeah. So, um, I'd rotate them, but you know, I, I probably use just the same few kind of over and over again, stuff that just would go fast. Yeah, and I, I really didn't do a good job of tracking that either because, you know, <laughs> again, I, I got into a bad mindset and was there 24-7 and uh, knew I was losing money, so <laughs> I just kind of stopped caring. I'm like, I don't care, just just whatever. <laughs> yeah, I get that. I was that definitely get that. I mean, so, if I buy a cake for 99 bucks, I know it's got to be making money, but I, I wasn't really, you know, I know what I'm supposed to get out of it, but I, I was doing a bad job of tracking, you know, how much waste I was getting from Mm-hmm. You know, over pools and all that crap and what I was giving away and what I was drinking. What you had there. <laughs> so, That's always the hard that, part with guest beer. Most of mine that I had at my brewery was uh, stuff that I wanted to drink as a roadie on the way home, which was probably not the right thing to choose it for. But And then a few things in there to fill style gaps and everything. But yeah. I got a court date for a... Uh, for my last pullover in, in a couple of weeks here. Oh, that <laughs> so, sucks. Sorry I about that. I had a roadie every night on the way home. I'm not afraid to, to tell anybody. <laughs> I'm, I'm a professional at that. I've been doing it since I was driving. It's one of my favorite things to do, but I, I just, now that I have older kids too, I can't, but man, I miss it tremendously. Yeah, so. definitely. Yeah, and that's what I did because I was making such small quantities of my beer. Like basically I can only just get to taste my beers. I didn't want to drink a whole one because mm. I'm like, that's what, because a couple times I'd, I messed around and went down and only had two or one of my own. And a couple of times I've been on like a Saturday and they, they, they all kick at the same time. And I've got none of my own beer. And that's definitely a mistake. People don't like that. Yeah. You don't want to run <laughs> out completely. So I, w- I would just take whatever the cheapest keg I bought was and that'd be my beer for a week. <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah. I'm just drinking that some cheap lager or something, <laughs> you know, but. So why did you decide, which clearly you made the decision in the beginning that you didn't want to do distribution? Like when you opened there was still there were still people doing that. I mean, like for the most part, like we since COVID, there, there's a whole switch a little bit. But at that point, there were a lot of people that felt that distribution was uh, important. And so, why did you not? Is one question. For one, I mean, it goes into a lot of what I've said. I, I, I like I wasn't interested in making the same beer over and over again. That's the biggest factor. I, I thought I was differentiating myself by being so small batch and so off the wall. Like I, I thought that was going to be the thing that bucked the trend mm-hmm. a little bit. You know. I mean, a lot of small breweries started that way, but I, I think they kind of changed over over time, like you said, and, and stick with those flagships. But for money was a big factor. I knew I didn't have the money to to buy a big system either. Mm-hmm. You know, I opened this thing with just a little over a hundred thousand, not half a million or a million like other people are putting in. You know, so yeah, my whole brewery setup was like maybe twenty five grand as opposed to the hundred that that bigger breweries are spending or more. And then, you know, even the cost of the license I was, I was factoring in. I mean, it was like six, seven hundred bucks for my CMBP, just the brew pub license, as opposed to like three thousand a year or whatever it is for the full CMB for, for me making such a limited amount. Yeah. You know, even that's the cost that I had to figure in yearly. And I then definitely wanted to consider it, 
there, but then also zoning was ended up being an issue that I didn't realize is the county that I'm in and every municipality is different there. They told me I couldn't do a full production license mm. because of where I was zoned to retail instead of industrial. Right. And, you know, that's going to be different wherever municipality you're in. Going back, you know, that's another reason why it's probably better to go with like a, a small town that really wants some economic impact from having a brewery there. They're willing to kind of change the rules a little bit for you. Whereas the county, like I said, they could care less. They're like, hey, these are our rules and whatever. Do it or don't, you know. Really, it's a philosophy thing. I really just didn't want to make that large batch beer thing. But because I, I want to experiment, that's boring to me. You know, I, I always wanted to in the future. But so what I would have to do first is make money and then hire brewers that sit there and they make the same thing over and over. I, I get no joy in brewing if I know exactly what it's going to taste like when I'm done, you know. Yeah. So it wasn't one of those things that you thought that there was a bunch of money in the taproom only model and that whatever. It's just you were starting with this and then as it grew, you're going to see what's going to happen. Well, and there, there's another fact too is, you know, in distribution, your, your profit margin is way down. You right. have to produce a lot more to, to make any money. So that, that's factored in too. Like we said, then the distributor is making more profit than I am and that kind of pissed me off. So I'm like, no, why, what am I, what am I making their lives easy for? You know? Yeah. We've been, I mean, in, in the Florida state legislature, th there's been a bill proposed for like seven, eight years now for self-distribution, but it never passes for some reason. And I wonder why, because you know who controls yeah. <laughs> that market, the, the, the politicians. It's, of course, our AB's got a huge presence in Florida with a big brewery in Jacksonville or whatever. And, you know, they're in the pockets of all the politicians. So Small guys don't have lobby money. That's why we still got the three-tier system. I thought maybe with the, all the, the COVID restrictions and everything, maybe they'd try to do something for the people and, and do that. But nope, we still didn't get it passed last year because th that model I would be interested in. You know, I, that's eventually I wanted to, to move this into a farmhouse brewery. That, that, that was my goal the whole time. So I thought this would be a little starting point, get my money back within a couple years to the point where I'd be able to get some loans and get a bigger property and, and do all that. So, I mean, that, that was really my, my end goal. And from there, maybe just put out, like I said, I make these special or, or weird beers. You know, I'd like to do like the larger format bottles, mm -hmm. make a killing on those, you know, and they're, that's what people line up for, you know, when you got a special release and a big bottle, you know, that excites people. I know that much at least. <laughs> but, <laughs> you still see lines for those. <laughs> I was never one to buy them because I've always been cheap. Well, here Even though I've been in beer so long, you know, I'm not paying $50 for a, a 22 ounce bomber, you know, there's, there's no way. It can't be that good. Yeah, well, here in so, Texas, the bombers are dead. Like over the last four years, you just slowly saw them just get yanked out of stores and like just no one carries them yeah. anymore. So people still are kind of interested in a way, but at the end of the day, it's, I don't, I don't think that's a viable model here. And I don't know Florida. No, I'm not even in stores. I mean, selling just at the brewery. Mm -hmm. You know, that, I still like the taproom model. I think if you're, you're making your profit there, but then add on a product that they don't have to drink there that they can take home. That's when you start getting a little bit more profitable i think with the taproom model yeah you can you, know? you just get to do a good job of training your staff to make sure that they are you know ask it's, it has to sort of become a salesy thing otherwise if you're just yeah. waiting for the the hype margin to come through hey, it might be one weekend but it's not the next and it's it's it, it's not a miracle cure i guess put it that way so once you got open you get your brewing you're getting to make the beers that you want for me it took literally six years before I started making beer that I was truly proud of. Mm -hmm. What about you? Like when you first opened, did you have some work to do still on some of the recipes? Were there some that were just fucking killer right out of the gates? Did you have, you know, time? I, I mean, I, I think they were pretty killer. 
over time, I definitely made some bad ones where I was just having <laughs> equipment issues or something. And, uh, and I know a lot of breweries that will just treat those. And honestly, that's probably something I should have done too, but I would end up dumping them mm-hmm. because I didn't want to, I didn't want my quality to suffer, but you know, there, there was probably three or four over the course of two years that I probably thought I shouldn't have sold. But, uh, for the most part, I mean, if I, if I got an idea in my head, I, I can usually make something pretty good. But, <laughs> okay. Um, Sometimes, yeah, it doesn't. You can get off flavors here and there, and but you know, I'm not the type to just throw a bunch of juice in there to to sell it. But yeah, which you definitely see. Oh yeah, okay. Make a slushy out of it. What the hell? <laughs> well, so on the the note of the beer, let's let's talk Untapped, or I guess specifically, let's talk shit about Untapped. So, what okay. are your thoughts about how it's changed the industry fundamentally? It completely sucks. Um, the fact that you can leave a, a rating without a review, I think, is the, the, the biggest problem with it. Because, hell, I mean, I, I would still go to Rate Beer or Beer Advocate or something just because the people putting the reviews on there, if I, if I found something I hadn't had before, I want to see, you know, give me some tasting notes or something, you know. Mm-hmm. If I can go on untapped and just put one star because I don't like I, I had this problem where I just had a post on Facebook the other day where somebody was talking shit about my brewery that I thought I knew. Huh. Yeah, you know, said like, oh, somebody posted in one of the beer groups, you know, like, uh, oh, did they go out of business? And, you know, a guy goes, look, good riddance, blah, blah, blah. So I'm sure he gave you bad reviews because he's like, his beer was bad and his politics were worse. So <laughs> I would sit behind the bar and I, I had an open mind. I mean, I'm very libertarian minded. I'm sure we'll get into more politics later because you can't sit and hear a differing opinion from yours. Everything sucks. You know, like how, how, how childish is that? You know, and I think that's what a lot of untapped users are, you know. Or, or they'll drink a style that they just don't like the style and give you a, a one-star review. Like, no, understand beer. Does it taste okay for what the, the brewer was trying to do and you just don't like that flavor? You, you can yeah. still give it a good rating and not particularly, you know, I could still give an IPA a good rating, but I, I think it tastes like shit, you know, but. Why well, would use the example of the you know, uh, German chocolate cake? Like, I just, I fucking hate coconut in a beautiful chocolate cake. But if you make one, I'm not going to go online and say that it's terrible because I didn't like coconut. Like, I shouldn't have fucking eaten it. Like, I don't understand. That's that's what a lot of impact is, yes. <laughs> so. I still did okay on my ratings there, you know, even, even considering. But In my experience, I was surprised to see you have a, actually pretty high ratings overall or at least higher than average. Like, I think the lowest stuff was like 3.6, which is pretty normal, some stuff over 4. And again, I've been researching a lot of these over and over, and I was surprised. So I think you did pretty well. One question. Did your perspective on Untapped change from when you were a home brewer to a pro brewer? In other words, did you use it back then? Were you a before? Uh, No. When it first came out, I think I downloaded it, but I I never, never really kept up with it. You know, beers was kind of my whole life, so I didn't need to remember what beers were. You know, I... Mm -hmm. I can't remember. I can't remember shit else, but I know every beer I've ever had. You know, <laughs> well, maybe not the ones at the end of the night, but <laughs> you know, I know when I've had an experience. You know, that that's in my brain forever. You know, it's I don't need to go look at my notes, and that's what a lot of people told me they would use it for. You know, oh, I want to remember if I had this or blah blah blah. I'm like, how do you not remember that? <laughs> you know, yeah, right. So, no, I, I I never, like I said, I w- I would go to new breweries and stuff just to, or you know, I'm going to a big beer store and there's stuff i haven't had like i said i would go to a rate beer or something like that and look at some actual reviews i always thought that was a lot more useful but no i i never use those apps um i didn't go manage my my inventory on untapped or anything i i barely even ever logged in there just every once in a while i'd go to see what what people are saying you so, know or what they're rating my beers and that's it 
So that was going to be one of my questions. Like, how did you feel when you read a bad one? Um, and you did, again, you didn't have very many. It, it took me a long time to find one that was one and a quarter caps. But, you know, the yeah. guy didn't like your IPA. He said it was more like a haze, or a American Pale. Is that one of the reasons you didn't read them is you didn't like reading them? I, I hated it. So. Uh, I don't really care to read what idiots have to say. So, yeah, no, I mean, I don't know. It's not that I didn't. I mean, yeah, it feels good if you see a good one on there, you know, especially if somebody actually could describes it in some words but you yeah. know all the ones with just the rating I, what am i learning from that i don't know a lot of them might have just been people that like me and know me and so they're just going in there to, to help me out or i don't know i didn't really care you know i looked at google reviews a lot more honestly which i was at five i think i'm still at 4.9 or five stars and my you know i had about 100 google reviews so you had, you had 78 almost all of them positive um and only one guy was bad so at, at some point I, I just wonder if, as a business owner, if, are you able to ignore the one bad one that almost is probably an anomaly at that point because everybody else is positive? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it will piss me off a little bit because I'm like, what the hell? And I think that one was because I was like 10 minutes late or something. But, you know, I'm a small, like, little family operation as well. I was trying to be, and I'd show up 10 minutes late for work every once in a while. I, I think that was my bad review that I wasn't there or something. I'm like, hey, it happens sometimes. Sorry. So I, got, so I got a question for you. So my book is on Amazon and I have two really shitty reviews. The most recent one, there's this little <laughs> fuckwit that calls me racist by saying, because she, I think it was a woman, she said that I, by, by suggesting that buying a woman's beer solely because she's a woman is uh, sexist, she calls me a bigot and a sexist, which is the stupidest fucking thing ever. I am not. But it's on there and it says it. Do you think that affects my book sales? I'm curious. From your perspective, would you look at an Amazon review before purchasing a book, and would that make you be like, eh, I shouldn't get it then. Kelly's an asshole. Uh, I do look at them, and I mean, honestly, again, I'm, I'm a different kind of person. I kind of, really bad reviews kind of actually might make me want to buy something more, honestly, because <laughs> especially if I could tell that the person's a fucking idiot. Yeah, like, right. Right, there must be something here, you know. It's, so I, I'm more influenced by bad reviews than by good reviews, but in a good way. But I don't think the general public is like, if you got 50 reviews and one or two is bad, I, I don't think most people have a problem. I don't think that's going to sway their opinion, though, either. Well, I hope so. <laughs> we'll see. Um, I hope not. But so let's take a quick break. Uh, we have been teasing this COVID conversation the whole time. So I think it's time to get into it right after we come back. And let's talk about what happened and uh, what you did about it. Sounds good. Before the late 90s, when you wanted to know what year Napoleon invaded Russia, you'd have to either A, pay attention in class, B, know somebody who knew, or C, look it up in an encyclopedia. Thankfully, my kids don't have to look in 30 volumes of Britannica to find answers anymore, and neither should you. When you're fermenting beer in a closed tank, you can either use the hydrometer that was invented in 1790, go check it up on Google, or AccuBrew. And AccuBrew is a real-time, web-based measurement system that gives you access to your beer's fermentation metrics from literally anywhere in the world. It measures current gravity, temperature, and even clarity, and compares them to the standards you set for the recipe your team is brewing. If something's off... You'll get a notification immediately. So seriously, go to AccuBrew.com, follow them on socials at AccuBrew, or just call Parker at 727-685-9860. Your beer, your customers, and I will truly thank you. All right, so as promised, we're going to talk about COVID, and we're going to talk about how, uh, unfortunately, it, it finally fell apart. So you finally opened in January 2020. COVID happens you know, literally right afterwards, or, or more specifically, the idiot government's stupid response to COVID. Uh, and you had to shut down March 17th, I guess, is what you said. And you didn't have to reopen again until... Yeah, it was the 14th or the 17th, I think. Yeah, something like that. 
Okay. And you didn't get to reopen until June. So what, how do you, how do you even begin to deal with this? What did you do? Yeah. And even in June, it wasn't full, you know, they try to do the rules about if you're eating, you can sit down and shit like that, but I didn't have food. So that didn't help me either. I mean, I, I was of course pissed off from the start that day. Yeah. That's why I think, yeah, I got text that day. And I think they were saying like, as of like six o'clock that night or something, you couldn't be sitting in a tap room anymore. So I went to work and, you know, I actually had a pretty good bar that day at 12, 15 people or something sitting there. And I'm like, I'm not going to kick you out <laughs> at six, you know, what, the, what are we going to do here? And as it went on, I'm, you know, I, I try to look into like, let me get like a permanent food truck or something to get around that shit. Or a lot of the breweries around here went with a little pizza oven and, you know, they're going to make hot pockets for you. And, you know, just as a reason that you could still sit at a bar. And actually that wasn't even at first. At first they said you were completely shut down for a little while. And then they said you can sell to go only like growlers or whatever, mm-hmm. which I wasn't set up to even do that. But then I had to. Didn't you tell me that but your license didn't like, allow well, for it? Right. Which was nonsense. <laughs> but, um, you know, then they announced that restaurants could sell to go and that's still in effect now. So as far as I was concerned, they can't tell me I can't sell a growler then at that point. If yeah. you take a mixed drink out from Philly's, then they can't tell me I can't sell a growler out of my brewery. Right. But yeah, I mean, I toyed around with those food ideas, but it was mostly garbage food. I mean, I knew a couple of breweries that would, they'd say, Hey, don't eat this food. You know, <laughs> they wouldn't even want you to buy it because it was going to be garbage. You know, they were just trying to play with the government. And, you know, I decided early that no, I'm not. For one, I think it was just more extortion. Then you got to go pay for the food license and you got more inspections. And I said, mm-hmm. no, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm, I'm not going to play their game. <laughs> I basically thought I could get, get around it with, with uh, my, my speakeasy model. That's oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I, I not once that I, sh- I stopped advertising though, which hurt. Yeah. Because I did, I didn't want, you know, I had 20, you know, regulars that were, you know, I'd see a few of them at least every day, you know, and sometimes I'd, I'd have 15, 20 people in there when there, there wasn't a car in the street, you know, but <laughs> so then my location being kind of hidden away, it was actually in my favor. Yeah. And being, un- and being in an unincorporated county because there weren't like regular patrols or anything. But, but yeah, I thought I could just maybe get away with that. And, you know, like I said, what are they going to do? Come in here and tell everybody they got to leave. There, there were no real legal ramifications for, for breaking those laws. And I knew that I didn't think we were in really any danger. That's going to be controversial, I guess, but maybe not with your listeners. But, <laughs> you know, I, I sat there for, for two years of it, of having people in my face and we became really family like i said those same maybe 20 people they'd still be at my place two three o'clock in the morning sometimes and you know we're in there dancing having a good old time and not once i hear of anybody getting sick in those two years really there i finally got i got covid for christmas last year when i've been sitting at home by myself for a while but never at the bar you know in my mind i'm like what am i what am i doing am am i contributing (laughs) to this problem no nobody's getting sick and dying over here so i'm i'm gonna not i'm gonna not comply you know well, but, the issue yeah. like all of us had too is that at some point you weren't doing anything dramatically different than any restaurant that was was doing either was when they were open. So that was always a problem for me too is that when they reopened everything and they allowed people with food to sit there, there were bars that were just – they had repurposed the POS system so that when you bought a beer, the beer was 7 bucks normally, but it said the beer was 3 bucks, The chips were 3 bucks, and the salsa was fifty, whatever it was. I know that math does not add up, yeah, but, um, but yeah, so it's the same bullshit and everyone's playing a game. So at some point you, you played a game, but it sounds like you won somewhat or it worked for you. Well, I mean, at least I had fun. I mean, those are some of my funnest days at the bar, you know, 
Yeah. Of course, I was mad about the situation and, and stuff, but I mean, it, it was it was like my garage bar or something, you know. Like I, I knew I, you know, I had some people that came every every damn day, and we just hung out like family and sat outside the front doors. The weather's nice. We'd just sit on my sidewalk and drink yeah, beer. Cool. And hell, I was like, hey, just go, just go pour your own beer, you know. And I I, I stopped charging people honestly yeah. because I'm like, well, how am I going to show all this and process it through POS? I said. Well, I don't know if the IRS is going to get a hold of this, but I told people bring cash <laughs> and just give me what you thought at the end of the night. I'd be like, hey, just just give me what you think you owe me. Yeah, whatever's fair. You know, so I probably made a little bit more than I reported because I'm like, hey, I'm giving away the beer. This is my tip, so I yeah. just put it right in my pocket. You know, at that point, so what? Hey, what else was I going to do? You know, yeah. I didn't have the money left over to kind of get me through that. So I, I, I think I was capitalized enough to make it work if no issues happen, but that, you know, state of emergency happening yeah. m- made it so it wasn't sufficient, you know, to, to make it through, you know? Well, and, and yeah, it really, it really hurt me in terms of social media posting or advertising. I mean, like, what, what am I going to say? We're having trivia night when you're not supposed to be sitting here at a bar. You can't do that, you know? So I kind of just went underground with it as much as I could. Well, and you were, since you weren't open in 2019, you weren't really eligible for any of the government assistance, were you? Or were you able to get anything from that? I got between PPP and what, the EIDO grant or whatever. I got thirty nine hundred dollars. Mm, not even like one month. That, that was enough to help me for a couple of weeks. Yeah, but yeah, because it was all based on your payroll from twenty nineteen and your and your change in revenue or whatever. I'm like, well, so the ones who opened in twenty twenty were the hardest hit, and they did absolutely nothing for us. Right, because you had even, no even clientele. PPP, even the PPP, I had only paid somebody for a month and a half. Because I, I wasn't taking my own paycheck either. And they wanted to average three months. I said, well, can we just take February? That was the only full month that I had and use that for my basis. Because they, they did some kind of multiplication of that. But no, they insisted on averaging the week in January that I paid somebody and the two weeks in March that I paid somebody with February. So that's what made it such a low amount. I'm like, well, how am I supposed to keep this? Are, are we really trying to keep people employed here? Because this isn't going to help me. Yeah. Seems like not <laughs> helping the problem at all. That's stupid. So, yeah. It, uh, anyone who opened in 2020 really got screwed. You know, that we, we were the most vulnerable. You know, you would think it would do something, but, you know, we know, the big chains, they did just fine. They're a little bit better at working whole, those systems, too, so that helps. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I guess some of the other guys did good around here, but they were open for at least most of 2019, and some of them had been open for a few years, so I'm sure that helped. I was still trying to staff myself out when it all happened, so. There were guys that got more money than they've ever gotten because of the EIDL in an industry like ours. If you're 9% operating margin or minus 20% operating margin, and then you take 2020's or 2019's revenue, 75% of that, that's, that's more money than you would have made over the preceding decade. So a lot of guys that got some free mm-hmm. money did a lot with it, I'm sure, and bought canning lines. You saw that. Yeah. But in the end, like in this, I think, next few months, you're going to see how much impact it actually had as far as profitability. I think a lot of that money's gone. And so they kept them open longer, but I don't know that it necessarily was a long-term Band-Aid. And for me, I had the same problem you did. So I didn't pay myself in 2019. And so I had no PPP to get mm-hmm. in 2020. I was like, well, that's stupid. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. So when Everybody you- was, you know, get their unemployment. They wanted to expand employment. Like, I'm like, I'm willing to do it, but I have no money to do it, you know? Yeah. I could use some help, you know? But, so oh well. When did you decide to start doing cans? Um, I mean, I really only did it the one time, and it's only because that's when I did one of the, the five-rail batches at, at Community. They just happened to have a mo- mobile canner out, 
So I'm like, yeah, get packaged up as much as mine as you can. And I mean, we kind of, we went around some of the laws during that too, because it was almost a free for all then, because nobody knew what the hell they were doing. You know, technically there, I would have had to sell to a distributor and then buy back my own beer from them. Really? See, there's another fucked up, there's another fucked up licensing thing. You know, you could transfer if I had the full CMB. But for some reason, they wouldn't let me do it. So when I did that, I was having to sell to sell my own beer to a distributor. They would have to sell it. And then it was messed up. Yeah. But, you know, so then when I had that can, they're like, well, I, I don't know. It's the Wild West out here right now. So I was just like, I'd have to buy it from them, basically. But yeah, but yeah I mean, I, I had, I don't know, six or eight cases made. That's all I ever had canned. If I could have kept that going, that that would have been a good model to go with. But. You know, it didn't work out. They ended up having, they were inside, these guys were inside of a bigger contract brewer. They were just renting space hmm. from them. Um, so they had a falling out. So they ended up leaving that space and they're still looking for a new space. And once they open again, I may, that may be a way I get back into it. Maybe just do a couple contracts and see if I can get a distributor to pick them up and, you know, go that way, make a few bucks, keep the name out there a little bit, you know, but someone to go could have been a, a band aid for me at least. So but, if you only did it the one time, like what, what kept you open that whole time? You didn't close for what, 16 months after reopening in June, essentially. So just, I still had a little reserve left. I mean, I was losing money every week. I was throwing a thousand or two of my own money in there every month to go along with working 150 hours a week. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm giving, giving away a couple thousand. So that's when I finally pulled the plug when that was about gone. I'm like, okay, I'm not, can't take the stress anymore all the damn reporting and crap and all the, the government systems. I wasn't a big fan of that either. Taxing me on my beer as soon as I keg it instead of when I sell it. Like, what the hell? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of that. Supposedly, they keep t- introducing some idea to do a new bill to reform it, but no one seems to give a shit, or at least not enough. Sure, I still owe them a lot more money, but I stopped checking my business mail. So <laughs> maybe it'll go away. I highly doubt it, though. <laughs> so what They'll po- find me eventually. At what point did you know the brewery was in like bad trouble. Like obviously when COVID happened, you decided to pivot, to do what you could do. But when did you sort of look out and be like, all right, what the fuck am I going to do? I mean, maybe three months into the shutdowns when they kept extending things. I'm like, okay, I thought maybe this was going to be, I wasn't really that worried at first. You know, I was pissed, but I'm like, okay, this has got to be temporary, but they kept pushing and pushing. And I just, uh, by that time I was already on a, a shoestring margin, you know, like I, I, I needed to get back into that, some advertising or do something or, or, or throw a grand opening or grand reopening party or something. But I, I, I couldn't afford to go in and make 12 new beers without selling more first. You know, I, I was just out of money, basically, you know, one of those, it takes money to make money. You know, I never went the area I was in too. I was going to rely heavily on, there's a bunch of hotels in the area. I mean, we're a little North of, uh, Disney World and all that stuff. There's a lot of like tech companies right in my area. I was really planning on like a happy hour crowd mm-hmm. to drive my revenue. But so then I started noticing then after this thing dragged on for six months, a year, a lot of people didn't go back to work. And the ones that did started working virtually all the time. So all those offices never had the traffic come back and they still don't. Yeah. Now employers figured out you can pay somebody to work from home and they're just as productive. What am I going to rent out? You know, these $100,000 a month office bills. You know, and I think that's kind of the trend going forward, too. I still see a lot of traffic out there. I don't know where the hell they're going. But <laughs> most people I know that had, you know, some kind of corporate job, they're working from home most of the time still. So you kind of lose the happy hour crowd that I was going to hit on. And that's where I was going to target my advertising, too. You know, going with coasters or something. Say, hey, can I leave these at the desk or in the break room? You know, between that and the hotels. But 
that all dried up. So then I'm left to rely on only the local demographic and that wasn't enough. Yeah. I apparently misunderstood that, that graphic too. I, I think the people here, even though they have some money and tastes, it's almost like they're, they're chain restaurant people around here. I'm finding out, you know, mm. either that or they've got the real money, you know, they're, they're the fancy steakhouse and, and, and expensive wine people, not necessarily the craft beer people. So I definitely had an issue with my market analysis, I guess. But I, I think a big part of that was, I think the office worker people is what I really was going for. And I didn't end up being able to get them because of what happened. Could have been your base essentially and, and kept you with at least some consistency. And then you could have built off that. Yeah, so, definitely. So how did that trouble start to manifest? Like when you, like, was there points where you just, you couldn't order grains to, to brew the beer or you just couldn't get supplies or? Uh, I mean, I always found a way to do that. I mean, well, going back, I was living off a lot of credit card debt too, which mm-hmm. I mean, I might have to end up with bankruptcy here too, because there's no way I can pay that back. Yeah. <laughs> I somehow ended up with good credit during this process when I was starting the <laughs> business, which I never had before. So people just started throwing money at me because the economy was, was roaring and all that. So there's a lot of debt. I won't say how much, but that <laughs> I'm not paying back. So I, I still had open, open lines of credit at that time too. So I was living a lot on that. So I, I kind of kept my reserve as long as I could, but then credit ran out in 2021. Then I started seeing my bank account going down every every month, and that's that. So probably it was 2021 before I when my credit ran out. That's basically when it was, because you know then I start seeing okay in three, two three months I'm not going to be able to pay my power bill at this rate or yeah. or rent or yeah. So that's that's where the trouble started. You, you need credit, well, and you need to be able to make money with it. You know, and I, and I got on a lot of those credit companies had little plans and they gave you a little break for a few months here and there. But then after a while, you know, I was like, Hey, I'm still trying to pay you. Is there anything you can do for me? Like, no, we already gave you this deal for three months last year. So no, there's nothing. I'm, you know, I'm the type I'm like, okay, so do you want me? I was willing to give you something. Now you're not getting anything. Yeah. <laughs> you want, you wanted the full amount. So I'm like, okay, you're not going to get, you can't have anything then. You work with me. I, I was willing to, to pay my obligations, you know, but if you're going to be that much of an asshole of a company during these hard times, then yeah, I'm sure you're not going broke American Express, you know, so fuck off. Sorry. Yeah, they'll be fine. <laughs> you took a risk on me and didn't pay off. You're going to be, all right. <laughs> you know, I'm small potatoes out here, but just the business didn't come back. I, and I did. A, a lot of it is my fault. I mean, I got inconsistent in making my beers. You know, I told you that I, I started running low on my own beers a lot just because I didn't have an assistant and, and, you know, and I started treating the place like my hangout a little bit. And I had, like I said, some equipment issues. So I got frustrated. I had a couple, I had a contamination issue for a while or I, that I didn't realize for like four batches. So I lost a few of those. I had mm-hmm. my, my heating element stopped um, switching off, you know, like a thermostat or whatever. So I had a couple of scorch batches. So that started getting to me. So I was brewing less and I could only, I started being able to make, I couldn't even utilize one of my kettles. So I could only brew one barrel at a time, which as we said, one barrel is just as much work as making two while I'm there. You know, so basically my, my cost of labor went up dramatically. So, you know, and And this is when you started kind of getting burned out and just like, how, how did that feel? Like for me, it affected my creativity where it was hard to still be proud of the beer and be excited to make it. Um, when I was definitely, definitely. having to deal with these, you know, financing issues, and there were three times that my wife and I sat down, looked at the bank statement, and we're like, "All right, so we're negative two twenty thousand dollars. What are we going to do to fix that?" And then you got to go in and try to yeah. create something beautiful. It's hard to do. It is definitely, especially yeah. I mean, I'd be there. Uh, I got 
two little kids too. So some days I'd have to have them and I couldn't, you know, I was only closed on Tuesday. So that was supposed to be my brewing day. But by the time you got so many other things to do, I'm like, oh, well, I can't get in there and still get to school and t- to elementary school in time to get my kids. And mm-hmm. I don't want to get something started today because you're brewing a beer. You can't just let it sit there and, and come back in two hours. That's not going to work. Yeah. You know, technically depending, but I, I never want to leave things on when I wasn't there. But uh, yeah. And then just, you know, so I'd end up brewing on days when I'm going to bartend. So I'd be there at nine o'clock in the morning and I'm still there at two in the morning. And that's a long day, <laughs> you know, indeed it is. <laughs> and that make it so I'd have the, I'd have the exhaustion. And like I said, I'd have the hangover too. I'm not going to say I wasn't drinking a lot. So then that makes the next morning even harder. And then it's like a self-perpetuating cycle, you know? <laughs> so just every day got worse basically. So, so it was almost a relief to finally shut it down. It was honestly, I mean, I know I lost a lot of money. Um, I've still got a lot of my equipment. I actually just drove out to Tampa and St. Pete last weekend and sold most of my kegs. Oh, really? So, um, so, so I've been talking to a group of people that are my friends, but you know, they were customers. And so I had some investors lined up and just, we had meetings every week and we were going to do it again, but it ended up being, they didn't want to throw a lot of money at it. So it was going to end up being just kind of a repeat of what I already did, I think. Mm. Opening small again. And, and the more I think about it, thought about it, you know, I was going to be able to then take almost a back seat. I'd still be the, the main guy in it. One of them would do the marketing. One of them would handle the, the tax filing stuff for me and, you know, the, the state reporting. And I'm like, you know what? Okay. If, if I'm just going in to take care of the beer, maybe bartend one or one or two nights a week, I could do that. But I don't want to do it if it's going to fail again because I, I really don't want to fail twice <laughs> you know what i mean yeah. and i i started thinking i'm like I, if we're basically going to run the same model i was already doing and it didn't work before i don't know you know i i've got other ideas that i'd like to do but i'd almost like to take a back seat for a year or two and then maybe get that passion back but then the more i thought about that too is i started kind of like you said i, I started going in there and, and not even liking brewing hating the cleanup hating the work and i'm like it took all the fun out of what was my passion you know mm-hmm. for a long time so I, I think that's the only way I'd go back into it is if just as a, like a head brewer, not, not an entire business owner. It's, it was just, maybe it's just me, but it, it was too much to handle. I think you never get a second off. Well, and, and being in it as deep as you were, you were obviously able to look around and kind of get under the hood and, and you know, if, if there was a, something there that you could have been profitable had you done, I think you'd know what that is. And the fact that you don't know what it is means it's not fucking there. Like, I don't think that there's profitability at that scale. Yeah. I I mean, my, if I would have got to where I wanted to be, you know, it'd be like I said that it was supposed to go into a farmhouse type deal or almost on a winery model. You know, you you got wineries in the middle of nowhere, Mm -hmm. but people will go there and they're going to spend a whole day, you know, picnic or whatever. So you wouldn't never necessarily have regular customers, but I'd save money on costs because I'd be living there, you know. So it's like I'm not worried about really rent that I have to pay. I'm going to buy a property and have and live there and almost can be off the grid. Whatever money you make is just kind of your living expenses is it. Not, you know, a lot of that running a business is you're just you're paying just to keep the business running, not to pay yourself, I guess. And, mm-hmm. you know, what? why not just work for somebody else if that's what I'm doing? Because basically that's what I was doing. You know, I was working for the business. Yeah, but not getting paid a fair wage. <laughs> and I and I also thought I wasn't going to have a boss, and that was that's why I wanted to do it so much. But turns out the state of Florida is the worst boss I've ever had. 
I'd rather work for just a damn boss now. You know, yeah. it seems like go back to work on IT. So I mean, what's the difference? You know, at that point, <sighs> I don't know. Yeah, I, I'd like to go guest brew for somebody a little bit. You know, maybe I'll get a couple of those gigs around, and I, I'm still confident in my beers. I just want to deal with the other shit. I just want to make beer. Yeah, you know, that's that's the main thing. Well, I want to hear about what you're going to plan next, and then I also want to talk about a little bit like what uh, what you've got left and, and what that kind of the end result looked like when you left. But let's uh, take a super quick break. We'll be right back and let's get into that. All right. So do you ride motorcycles? Because if you do, you want the sickest gear on the planet. And SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com is the site for you. Break free from the pack with your kick-ass style and design that is as subtle as a sucker punch. When you're out on the open road, don't let anyone confuse you with your grandpa. Project an attitude that's all your own. With their signature style and performance, Simpson sets the standard of looking cool while providing superior comfort and protection. Authenticity counts, and there are many helmet brands out there, but there is only one Simpson. You ride a killer bike, don't you? Why settle for a boring helmet? Pick your poison at SimpsonMotorcycleHelmets.com. Badass riders don't settle for anything less. See for yourself on Instagram at Simpson underscore motorcycle underscore helmets. Thanks for riding with us. We'll see you out there. All right, so finally end up having to you know walk out of the building. Like, what what was that experience like at the end? Um, like, you know, do you remember where you left the keys? Did you leave the lights on to be an asshole to the landlord? Like, I, you know, whatever. Yeah, I, I definitely was an asshole, but they, <laughs> you know, I, I had I had issues with the landlord too. Just they they weren't doing anything to help, you know, or fix up the. It was. Okay, I, you know what? Here's an, here's another thing that that happened that I forgot to mention. This is going back into, I, I think before the shutdowns even started. I was getting signatures at the the county building. Like I said, I was in this little plaza tucked behind a gas station, kind of over there in the planning department. And you know, somebody recognized me because there were some cool people working in there. Hey, I wanted to show you this. It's not a letter of intent. I don't know something you. I can't remember the name of the thing. Something you submit to the county to make sure your business idea would work there they, they kind of give you a review to see if you'd be zoned correctly and all that stuff but it turns out wawa which i don't know if you have those in texas yet but um uh-uh. big gas station chain they're like here here's the letter of intent so it turns out they were trying to buy the gas station and my whole plaza and oh, really? you know, they had to draw it's close drawing and everything where they were going to knock down the whole plaza because wawa takes up a lot of space yeah so that's another thing i neglected to mention that was on my mind from the very beginning i'm like well what am i gonna do here my it took me so long to open i only signed a three-year lease and so I was only on one year left. So I'm like, okay, so Shit. if this plaza, if these, the owner decides to sell this thing, I'm gone. And all that money I put in for the construction is gone. That weighed heavily on my mind too. I'm like, that got real, real quick. Um, just finding out stuff like that. I think the, the shutdowns and everything actually helped me in that regard because that put all the plans on hold. So I ended up still being there. But at that point, the landowner there at the plaza, I think they made up their mind that they're going to sell. So they stopped renewing leases. And so the the plaza was turning dead. All the other business were, were going out of oh. there too because they didn't want to write a lease for a potential sale that somebody was going to knock down the yeah. building. They don't want to have leases because then they got to buy out of it. So I had a big argument with the landlord about that. You know, I'm like, hey, you got to tell me what's going on. And that didn't help me. You know, there was a pizza place that was kind of right there before they went out of business. So then I had no food available to me for my customers to sit there. You know, so just the plaza was dying, everything, everything really got into it. They offered me reduced rent for like three months and then they refused to do it anymore. So 
And I try to sign a new lease for him for less money because, you know, that's one of those things. I'm like, would you rather get some money or you want me to just move out of here? And then you got nobody in your whole plaza. And I'm like, reduce my rent and I'll stay. I'll sign another couple years with you. Yeah. But they refuse to do that. So, you know, there's another thing that pissed me off and they stopped maintaining the place. It was starting to go to hell. So, yeah, I just started going crazy with it. Did you manage to leave <sighs> when your lease was over or did you still have unpaid lease payments to make? No, I was, I just started going month to month. So mm-hmm. that was kind of uncertain too, you know, and then I started having like leaky pipes and things like that. I said, Hey, you got to fix it. They refuse to come in and fix it. They say, go get a fix and, and then submit your, you know, your yeah. work order, your receipt. I'm like, no, I don't want to put the money up front to do this thing. I don't know if I'm going to get it back from you. Yeah. Knowing that you um, didn't have it. Like that's why they said but, it. And I, I offered to, to sign like a six month one with them and they, they never prepared it. So I'm like, okay, I'm month to month. Screw it. Um, I kind of made the decision to close it down within a week or two of, uh, I think like the last day of September, I closed it down and I didn't, I didn't even advertise that until like the day before I said, yeah, you might've heard, but tomorrow's the last day. Come in and try to drink up this beer. I'll be doing specials. You know, I just want to get rid of what I had in inventory. I basically, uh, <laughs> removed everything out of there in, in two days. So that was a lot of stressful work. Wow. Um, I didn't, I didn't tell the landlord I was leaving until that day. I said, Hey, come get your keys. <laughs> like, no, I want to be there to do the final inspection and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, what do you want? You gave it to me. It was in like in shambles, you know, like, what do you, how do you expect me to leave this to you? I'm right. leave it better than you gave it to me. Well, if you don't like so, it, like, send I me took, a bill, put it in the mail. Yeah. I mean, I spent so much time in there. I, I took hundreds of pallets apart and I kind of did the pallet board walls. I sanded them and stained them all individually and built some of my own benches and stuff that were attached. Mm-hmm. I went in the day before I ripped every single one of those pallet boards off the wall. I still have them all. <laughs> the only thing I left my bar. Just because it was so, you know, it was epoxied over and stuff. I was thinking about cutting it into pieces and taking that with me too. But, but yeah, I, I basically ripped every, you know, I had like little mop sinks and stuff like that. I'm like, I'm not leaving that stuff there. I took everything. <laughs> but, but yeah, they didn't do me any favors. So I wasn't going to do them any favors. So I said, what the hell? Yeah, I get but it. Once I, you know, I got my shit in, I've got a bunch here at my small house. I mean, I'm sitting in stuff. I've got stuff in my friend's garage. I've got stuff in somebody else's garage. I've got a storage unit. So my shit's all over the place. You know, I just put an ad out there trying to sell some of it now. Cause like I said, if, if I do something again, I, I think I need to, I'd like to maybe be part owner of something, but I, I don't want to be the, the principal again. And if I go somewhere, I, I'm, I want to have like a pilot system to mess around on and brew my unique beers, but I don't need a ton of equipment for that. You, you got to go, like I said, the, you, you got to do at least a, probably a five barrel system to, to have a chance of making any money, you know, mm-hmm. with all that cost, with all the labor involved, you know, it's, I'll keep my, my system, my little two barrel thing, my, my two one barrels as a, as a pilot. And I'll always keep that, but you know, I've got two, two barrel fermenters that I also got from the same company. So, you know, my popular beers, I was going to make a double batch yeah. at once and use those. I, not once did I use those, those two. <laughs> two barrels you know because i ended up with them and being in a little room and just cleaning them was going to be such a hassle mm. they, they fucked up my floor drain in there bad contractor again um so you know i think i spent i don't know three thousand a piece on those or something so i'm trying to get 1500 for them now brand new but yeah all i'm going to keep is a one barrel fermenter maybe two half barrels because that's how i did my stuff too i mean going back to my philosophy i, I had four one barrels and four half barrels and so even my one barrel batches, I would split a lot of times and use a different yeast or something in, in each one and maybe treat them with, you know, a different local herb or fruit or something, you know. So that's why I was trying to really get my variety. You know, a lot of times I'd only have three, three sixths of, of a beer. 
Yeah. You know, but that's kind of how I wanted to be. But I wanted for a couple of new ones of those to come out every week. And I was having trouble maintaining that, you know, especially mm-hmm. on the sour stuff that I was trying to run because, you know, I had to let them sit a lot longer yeah, and longer. I didn't have the time or space to, to barrel age or anything like that. There you go. A lot of people know this already, but <laughs> I kind of stopped making my sours after a while because I had them in a whole different room or it and everything than my clean beers. But I started getting some infection issues there because I'm using the same pumps, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and stuff like that. I didn't have a dedicated pump, so sometimes the crossover is okay. You know, I could have a sour dark beer every once in a while if that happens. Uh, you know, I had a couple that came out all right. You know, the happy accidents, but so uh, that's hard to do the true mixed firm if you want to make clean beers too, because it's just just trying to keep them separate. You really need two two completely different facilities, I think. And I hate kettle sours; they taste like I don't know. They don't taste like anything. You know, <laughs> if I'm gonna have a a funky beer. I want it to be a real funky beer. The kettle sour is just kind of one noted and, and light. It's it's not necessarily I've done that bad. One, yeah, once in my life I did that. <laughs> but yeah, that so there's another issue that did cause me some problems here and there. I mean, I had a couple go sour that did not taste good. <laughs> so <laughs> well, that's one of the reasons that we used to do both too. And in 2017, we went full mixed culture because you had to make a choice. Like I think. Some of our best beers, uh, at least from a base perspective, were like our accidental sour Hefeweizen became Blondine, which was our uh, yeah, kind of wheat saison. Uh, it ended up being a great beer, but we couldn't have done both. Like that was definitely the issue. So, yeah, if I ever did kind of my farmhouse style, I mean, yeah, go go after like I want to be like a small Jester King or something, you know. But <laughs> or pretty much what you're doing, I think that's the way I would consider doing it. You know, little little mom and pop operation where. I'm not necessarily even trying to make a lot of money at it. Just, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of off the grid type of model is what I'm about now, you know, just disappear yeah. and have a little spot that people go to and pick up a case and there you go. Well, and if we could ship like wineries could, it'd be a lot easier to emulate that model, but we can't. And so they get to Definitely. ship nationally at least, which adds Definitely. a huge dimension for it, but. So looking back, what do you think is the biggest thing? Like, what are you the most proud of that you accomplished? Uh, I mean, hell, just, just opening the doors, you know, uh, especially just, I had some minor investors and my wife, but she became completely disinterested in it. So that led to, you know, the issues of the relationship while opening it up too. But, you know, doing it basically completely by myself. I had no business advisors really other than a couple of classes I took. And, you know, that, that first night, I mean, that's something I'll remember forever, you know, having 35, 40 people sitting there in, in my little slightly less than 1500 square foot spot, you know, and working. But that was my first night I ever bartended in my life too. Really? You know? <laughs> working behind a bar. So I'm learning from just, that's why I was that my soft opening period because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. But, uh, I mean, yeah, just going home after that first night. I mean, that, that's, that was the ultimate. It won't ever get any better than that. It never did, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's like the first time you smoke crack. Even the first time still good. It's never as good as the first time. But, you know, just to make that happen, just the fact that I even had that much money. You know, I never had that much money in my life. And I took a chance. And, you know, due to a lot of circumstances outside of my control and a lot in my control, it didn't quite work out. So I'm still glad I took the chance. You know, and yeah, I did something. Most people can never say they did it. Most people are too afraid to ever even try something like that. You know, so that makes me proud of myself, if nothing else. What's the the old quotes? Better to have loved than lost, and never to have loved at all. Pretty much, yeah. It's better to have exactly. grew than and lost. I don't know, but whatever. And yeah, I mean, really, if I could have got to the point where I had my assistant brewer taking more of a lead, I mean, I was kind of 
he only had a little experience. I was trying to kind of teach him at the same time and, you know, had a couple of mistakes made there, but no big deal. You know, if he could have eventually kind of took more responsibility and then even hired another, you know, eight, nine dollar a guy to kind of go under him even and let me be the creative mind and not the muscle. He gave me some bartenders that were reliable and where I'm not doing that all the time and where I could focus more on the business. I think it could have worked. And that was the plan. But, you know, those are the un- unforeseen circumstances that kind of didn't let it work. I think it could still be successful in the right setting. But like we discussed before, you know, maybe do a little bit more of that core core beer type thing. Mm-hmm. Make more of what, what your customers want instead of what you want. <laughs> That's definitely a problem that I've always had. You know, for me, it's always the weirder the better. I want I want something I've never tasted before, you know. Yeah. I know what an IPA tastes like. They don't get much better, you know. I know what a brown ale tastes like, which I love. That's probably my favorite type of beer. Good old standard beer-flavored beer, you know. That's what a, a term I always say. But, uh, you know, like I said, I, I just want to experiment with stuff like that. But uh, you got to have some core, some normal stuff to, to help help the newbies in or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, just to keep the consistency until you have, like, revenue constantly coming in and something to bank on and economies of scale. I'm never <laughs> – I'd never have a damn slushy machine in, in behind my bar. I know that much. <laughs> you know, I'm not doing that. I'm not. You got to do for the people a little bit more, but I'm still never going to follow the the trends completely. You know, I, I think there's a lot more to offer with some uniqueness, but you do have to do some of the mainstream stuff, I think, is is what I've learned for the most part. Yeah. Well, you know, you have to be successful. But that again, that was one of the reasons that I walked away because I wasn't going to do it. So how have you, um, have you dealt with the last five months? And, uh, one of the reasons I asked that is there was, I talked to my wife since we've sold, there were probably two different times that we, you could almost make the argument we should have closed, but we, we didn't, but it was a catastrophic moment. And at both of those times, I would have been, um, the failure would have, I would have been very depressed. And, and I was, I still had some issues at post selling. I mean, there's definitely, um, if you read the book, you can tell there's some anger and some sadness and all kinds of emotion in there. But you know, how, how does that look for you? Are you, 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 you seem okay to talk about it now, but I imagine it was pretty fucking rough yeah. in October. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, maybe I keep some stuff bottled up, but most people that ask me, I usually told them I was pretty happy with it. I mean, I was so stressed for those, the last six months, probably at least Yeah. that, you know, that was killing me. It was driving me to drink ridiculous amounts and just to maintain, you know, <laughs> I'm behind my bar, not only drinking all day with my customers, but I got bottles of bourbon back there too. And I'm, I'm pouring free shots for everybody that comes in, you know, I figure I could give them away. Right. Probably not legally, but whatever. But, you know, everyone that comes in and wants a shot, I'm doing one with them too. You yeah. know? And so it, the str- it, and it was, it was cause of stress. I mean, I was having, I was mad. I was having fun. Cause I was just, getting away from the stress with that, with the drinking and everything, you know, which I'm still doing every day, but I've cut back on the liquor at least, you know, <laughs> but, uh, but just not having that stress. I mean, I haven't worked. I've done a couple odd jobs here and there. <laughs> it's against my whole philosophy, but I, I don't even care about talking about this either. I finally broke down and I'm getting the, the food assistance. <laughs> oh yeah. Know? I don't feel bad at all. I paid, paid my ass off in taxes for the last fucking 25 years. So yeah. they give me that $600 a month. I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to apply. I just, try to renew it today you know i don't care i paid my due everyone else is taking advantage of it i couldn't get unemployment because i didn't really show any paychecks mm. for the last two three years so i was screwed on that one i got i got screwed on the you know all the loans and the grants like we talked about before so i'm like hey this is my way to <laughs> get get the money back that i think i 
should have got in the first place or something. So, you know, I've been living fairly comfortably with that. And, uh, you know, like I said, I do a little odd job here and there. Had a little bit of money left over. I've got some things to sell, but it's getting to the point where I'm seriously considered just taking a corporate job again for a couple of years just to get caught up on my bills and things and mm-hmm. then and just get a little bit farther away from it. And I think I'll get that itch back again, you know, because I like I said, I've, I've been talking with potential investors, a couple different groups and, you know, a buddy of mine or two that that are still open in breweries. I'm like, hey, you got just a few things I can do. I can live pretty cheaply. I could bartend a night or two a week and, and brew one one or two days a week and be able to pay my bills. Like I'm, I don't care about getting rich right now. I'm enjoying the lack of stress that I have, you know, other than a little bit financially, but it's been quite a relief. I mean, I wake up on a Monday, nobody's out in the trails I go to. I go hiking, <laughs> I go play some disc golf. I sit in my backyard and throw bags, whatever. It's, it's kind of nice, but yeah, you know, you can't do that forever. No, eventually the bills come due. So, so I, I think I've decided that I'm, I'm selling my stuff and I'm not going to try to open up the same exact way I was before, but I'm definitely leaving the possibility open of getting with somebody, collaborating with somebody in the future. I'm just not sure how, how yet, but I, I think I might need a year or two just to kind of decompress it a little bit more and then, then get serious, stack some more money back up. Honestly, I mean, I still have a resume. I, I could get a normal job again. I, I just don't want to because <laughs> I hated that too. <laughs> so. Yeah, I probably won't be happy until I'm living on a farm and just grow my own food and fuck everybody else. But that's probably not happening anytime soon. So, you know, day by day, day by day. I planned out my future before and it didn't work out. So let's try it this way. Yeah, well, you can always fall back on stripping. Uh, Yeah, I am pretty sexy. Yeah, that beard thing you got going on. That's uh... (laughs) all right. We'll see. Now that I'm not brewing, I might have to trim it for the summer. I did. I don't need my uniform. (laughs) <laughs> yeah right so. your your, uh, your brewer card can be returned exactly <laughs> I felt like I had to do it yeah I did but. for there was actually a period where I felt um, fit shamed and so there were occasionally I would go in places and just you know I mean if if I like didn't have a little bit of a belly and I, I was clean shaven for the day like the beer buyer just would, would immediately you could see look on the face like fuck this guy and so I would grow my beard out a little bit and just kind of look like a little bit shittier. And it would, every time it would be so much more comfortable conversation. So now that I've sold the yeah. brewery, I've lost I mean, 20 I, pounds. I have to shave myself. <laughs> I actually went went the other way, honestly. I, I got real unhealthy. I, I don't have the gut that I should have. But, um, I mean, being there all the time and I just started drinking a lot. And, you know, in the down days when I'm like, this shit's failing. So like I said, I just kind of started partying with my friends, drinking a lot and maybe some other things here and there. Mm-hmm. And I was always behind the bar at around dinner time. So I stopped. I didn't have time to like eat uh, dinner, yeah. regular dinners in front of people or whatever. I dropped like 50 pounds in 2020. Really? You know, I was like at 222, 225 when I opened the place. I still see pictures of myself with a short beard and short hair. And now I'm like, I, I was, I was down to like 171, I think for a minute there in, in a year. Holy which shit. that's not healthy for you while you owning know. a brewery yeah which is weird because i was just there all the time wouldn't eat dinner i'd feel like shit in the morning because i'd be hung over and all that so i wouldn't want breakfast maybe a couple bites for lunch and and that probably really fucked up my my mental states and even just my physical ability too you know so that's another thing to avoid is you know keep with your three sk- three square meals and all that you know yeah stay healthy it makes you make sure you better healthy. So, yeah, you know, those are the things you got to those are experiences that I'll remember, you know, looking back to take care of yourself a lot more, too. You know, that that's that's an important part that's probably overlooked in, in a lot of business, you know, 
when you get with all that stress level and that 24 seven nature of it, you know, you, you got to find a way to take some time for yourself too, you know? Yeah. If you don't have the balance, then just whatever it is, is going to take over and it, you, you will be worse yep, off definitely. for it. There's no doubt about that. Well, cool, man. That was a, it's a hell of a story. And I, I do truly wish you the best. I would, so I don't know if you saw the, the episode I released this week was actually hanging Hills and Joe had done sort of the same thing. He'd owned a brewery, it went out of business and he went straight contract and he swears yeah. that he's going to be uh, making great money. And so far it's working. So once my buddies open up their, their little place again, I, I think that may be the way I go. Even if I have to take another job, just going there and brew once a week or something, just so I'm still doing it mm-hmm. and you know, keep, keep a name out there. So that may be something I really, really consider or, you know, just seeing if somebody will let me guest brew here and there, you know, even if they pay me 50 bucks, I don't care. Just to, just to keep in the game a little bit, you know, I, I don't want to keep completely distance myself. I'm still a beer lover. I always will be. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's just, I want to help somebody out instead of being the, the main thing, you know? Right. Like, hey, you need a hand? Good. I'll do it. Well, I'll work for beer, whatever, you know? <laughs> and then go work for somebody else who'll pay for your health insurance and all that kind of stuff. 401k for you. Yeah. So, I mean, we that don't get, would be nice. We don't get that in this industry either. Definitely not. I went a couple of years without health insurance too. So yeah, that probably didn't help my general health either. I don't, I don't have regrets. I, I, I still think it could have worked. Like, like I said, I discussed issues where I know I could have done better, but without the COVID things happening, I, I think it still would have worked. So that's the good news for people that are still considering doing it. You know, yeah. I, I think that's pretty much behind us as far as any restrictions. So, but it, it's, it's, well, there's another thing I guess I didn't really talk about too, is I, I think not having food was a definite mistake. I think you got to have food at a brewery. You can't keep people there long enough, I don't think. If you can make food, then you're going to get the margin on it. One of the things you're seeing a lot now, too, is people are saying that the the taproom-only model is the only one that's working. And I don't truly agree with that, but if you're going to do it, you have to keep in mind that it's taproom-only. You're competing with bars who have the high-margin product of spirits. You're competing with restaurants who have the margin on the food. If you have a food truck there, you're not getting paid that and you're only getting the beer. I just I don't see how you're going to make enough revenue and, and profit to make it work. I, I think you almost have to invest in your own food truck, mm-hmm. keep them as like separate businesses, but still be the owner of it. I think that's probably a model that would work, but you got a lot more investment that way, you know? So More risk, more overhead, like, more potential as, for as failure. Say, it yeah. takes money to make money, you know? That's, that's the main thing. So that's the main lesson that everybody needs to know, you know? Yeah. Well, it also takes money to lose money. So don't forget that. <laughs> so sure does. I know about that one. <laughs> so well, yeah. I appreciate you sharing the story, and I definitely like wish you the best going forward. I think there's a lot that people can learn from what you did there, and um, yeah. I think your social media and your online stuff is still there. If someone wants to go out there and, and wish you best of luck, how do they find you? Like, how do, what's it is? It is. You know, it's it's genetic brewing on on both Instagram and Facebook. Uh, I've got genetic.beer has my website up there. I'm, I'm still gene at genetic.beer if you wanted to email me. You know, I'm, I'm still down with doing some collabs or something like that. Or hell, I'll even contract brew stuff for people that small batch. You want some wedding beers or something. You know, I'm still interested in that stuff. I haven't posted in a while, but I will probably start home brewing again at least. And at least just kind of post about what I'm doing, what weird stuff I'm getting into. Especially if I go back to making five or ten gallon batches. Yeah. I can get real, really weird, you know. Especially if I'm not trying to sell it and it's just for me, then you know it's going to give the way out there. You know, start doing some wild captures and stuff out here. You know, make a, a truly 100% Florida beer is is my main thing. Getting ready to plant some sorghum here soon. I'm going to try to make a 
you know, even the grain bill coming from Florida. That was always my plan. Never really. I broke my ankle too right before I opened when I had a sorghum <laughs> harvest. I was getting ready to malt them myself and everything too. So that crap went down the drain. But yeah, I'll be posting soon. And if I end up working brewing somewhere else, or if I start a new business, you know, well, that's why I tell everybody I'll post it on there. But but yeah, you know, check it out if you want to see somebody doing some weird shit. I should be posting that that more soon. I've been that much removed that I'm starting to get the itch to to do some brewing again. I haven't brewed since I left there, honestly. I still have some grains left over. I still got like eight kegs in my friend's garage that are full that have been sitting there that I'm going to go, I'm going to still go give them a try. Cause why the hell not? <laughs> Might as well. That's what they're there for. If they're wild, they're wild. So, yeah. but yeah, well, I'll keep everybody posted if anything happens and uh, hopefully something does, but we'll see. It may be a year or two, but I'm not dead yet. Well, that's the win. But, make it, make it through a career in craft beer alive. You've won. So congratulations. Awesome, man. Well, yeah, great talking to you. Um, you yeah. I love what you're doing too, man. So keep it up. Thanks a lot, and uh, guys, go find him online, support him. So hey, where are you kids buying your grains? You know, back in the day, we only had two options, and each of them knew it. When there isn't any competition, things like customer service and aggressive pricing just don't make a bit of sense to the big guys' bottom lines. But Brewery Direct has given lots of fucks about their customers since the day they sold their first bag of grain back in 2016. They sourced grains for quality and grains for price. And as an extension of Johnson Brothers Bakery Supply, their access to unique ingredients and brewing adjuncts is simply unparalleled. And now, with warehouses from Washington to New Jersey, you've got no excuse for an overpriced or unimaginative grain bill. You can't make great beer from any old bullshit, and Brewery Direct knows that. They have great prices on great grains and offer great service to great breweries of all sizes. Oh, did I mention the free shipping? Check them out at BreweryDirect.com or just type BreweryDirect into all of those social medias you seem to like so damn much. I'm letting you off the hook today without at least a sincere thanks for sticking around and supporting this podcast. While the content here can be emotional at times, I truly love sharing these stories and making a difference in the lives of my guests and in yours. If you appreciate what I'm doing, please tell a friend about the podcast or the book, which is available on Amazon and makes at least as good a gift as it does a paperweight. I also want to encourage your feedback. Find me on socials, email me freeplaykelly at gmail.com or send a carrier pigeon if you think that'll work. And please, maybe most importantly, Make it a point to do one thing today to make your life and career better and to always remember that mistakes are just weakness leaving your business. Free play. Media.